Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write the blog, Unpickled, where I've been telling you all about my adventures in sobriety since my very first day without alcohol in 2011. I tell my stories there, and I invite you to share your stories here. And on this, our last episode of 2018, I can't believe it, um, I wanted to really send you off into the holiday depths of the holiday <laughs> quagmire with lots of, of good information and inspiration and, and a happy voice to really get you through and thinking through these days. And so who better to have as my guest today than Andrea Owen. Now, Andrea is the creator of YourKickAssLife.com, which is such a fantastic resource page for not only for people in recovery, but just for anyone who wants to really look at their stuff and figure out where they're getting off track. Andrea is uh, returning to the Bubble Hour for the fourth time. Her other episodes you can listen to after this. If you want more of this good stuff, you'll find her on Season 2, Episode 3, Season 4, Episode 22, Season 5, Episode 45, and then you can listen to this one again and just double up on all that good stuff. Andrea is a sober woman. She's a life coach, a podcaster, an author of two excellent books, 52 Ways to Live a Kick-Ass Life, and also How to Stop Feeling Like Shit, a title that Andrea knows. I don't love that title, but man, I love that book. I love that book. And um, not only that, but she's just a whole lot of fun. So Andrea, welcome back to the Bubble Hour. Well, thank you for that beautiful introduction. And I didn't realize that you and I have the same sober anniversary year. My my date is September 27th. What's yours? March 20th. Okay, so you have about six months on me. Nice. I'm your big sister. sister. I'm your big sister. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, I, I put a little pressure on you um, saving us all from the Christmas season, but first, let's just remind ourselves of who you are. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Andrea. Well, it's it's funny when you were talking about the previous episodes that I've been on. I remember distinctly the very first time I was on your show, how nervous I was. And that was the first time I really started. It may have been the very first time where I publicly spoke my story out loud. You know, I had previously written about it, but I think that there's there's really something to be said as we walk further and further into our recovery. And I don't think that it's for everyone to blog about their story or, you know, podcast about their story, but it it can be hugely helpful just to say it out loud. And I just wanted to, to acknowledge that, you know, that I, I didn't come out of the womb in my sobriety free and clear and easily telling my story. It was, um, you know, it was terrifying those first few times, but where, uh, oh gosh, I come from a, like many listeners, I think of yours, my addiction, I, I identify as an addict. It started in my late teens, early 20s with codependence and love addiction. And it sort of in and out of an eating disorder in my 20s. And then I got help for those things in my early 30s. But that's right around the time that my drinking picked up speed. And, I mean, it was like one day I was I was all up in my symptoms of my love addiction and codependence and eating disorder. And then the next day I was all up in my symptoms of, um, with alcohol misuse. And I really wasn't 
in it for that long. You know, they say like I crossed crossed the line over into alcoholism. Thankfully, not that long because I had had a history of knowing what addiction looks like. And my dad had been in recovery for many, many years when I got sober. So I knew about 12-step programs. I knew about what a high-functioning alcoholic looked like. And so thankfully, um, I was able to get really honest with myself fairly quickly on in, in, my, um, in my addiction. So I got sober September 27, 2011, and been learning to feel my feelings ever since. <laughs> <laughs> I saw a great post on, on Instagram this morning that said, addiction is really any time you rely on using anything to change how you feel. And so we're all in recovery from something uh, under mm-hmm. those parameters. And your story really reminds me of, so I didn't identify in that until I looked back on it, but the way that addiction transfer happens. And mm-hmm. um, I, to me, I sort of thought my alcohol addiction popped up out of nowhere in my otherwise perfect life. But um, then when I pulled back and really started looking at it, I was like, oh, wait a minute, that connects to that, and that connects to that. Yeah. And and things really weren't so perfect, but they, they looked pretty good on the outside, and there's a big sure. difference between looking good mm-hmm. and feeling good. Mm-hmm. So yes, let's talk a little relate. bit about this holiday season, because this is where things like codependence and eating disorders, boy, are so many triggers, you know, family of origin and perfectionism and money stressors. I mean, it's almost like all of the things come to a head at this time of year. And then to top it up, we're supposed to be so darn happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so can we talk a bit about that, about just the pressure? Can we just acknowledge the pressure that people might be under Thank as you. they're listening to this podcast? Yeah, and I think that that's such a great word, Jean, is just the acknowledgement of it all. I think that not only do we have the pressure of so many of us having our families come over or going to see our families. For some people, it's like even going back to your childhood home. I have one client who is going back to see her entire family, all of her, she has three siblings and her parents, and and she's like, every time we get together, we all revert back into our position in our family system, and it's, it's great, but at the same time, extremely difficult and we have that. And then also for many of us who run households, we're expected to decorate the house and make treats for all of our neighbors and the school teachers and, and things like that. And I don't know about y'all, but I live in North Carolina and we had an unexpected snowstorm and we got record breaking snowfall and they canceled school for a week. <laughs> a week. Last Wait, in North Carolina, I, do you even own a shovel? Do you have, it's unusual. Do you have snow removal we do. tools? We got rid of <laughs> okay. our snowblower, and we were like, oh, we don't need it. And then we had like a foot of snow in our 150-foot driveway, and my husband's like, oh, my God. So we're underneath all the snow. They canceled school, and I worked from home, and it was Friday. It was the last day that they, you know, were out of school, and I was sitting at the kitchen table with my laptop, you know, trying to work, and my kids are, God love them, but if any of you – stay home with children you know how difficult it it can be and I got sober when my kids were toddlers like they weren't in school yet so that was rough like that first year (laughs) was rough yeah I was sitting at my kitchen table and just for the sake of total transparency I was I was looking out the window in the backyard and they were wrestling and screaming and playing they were playing they were just being children and it was starting to get under my skin. And you know that anxiety feeling of, like, if you feel like you just are crawling out of your skin? And I had that fleeting thought. Of, and the exact thought was, 
now I know why moms drink during the day. And when I have those thoughts now, I recognize them very quickly. Like, I don't let them just pass. Like, I look them straight on. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I see you. And it's, um, it's a red flag for me, but I'm very kind to myself. And I'm like, okay, uh, that just happened. And, no, I'm not going to go to the state liquor store and get a bottle of wine like I would have, you know, seven and a half years ago. But, you know, I, I text a friend and, and just tell them that I, that I had the thought. But I'll, I'll, I'm telling this story because seven years into this and when the holidays are around and just anxiety happens, it still happens and I still have to use my tools. Like that's the whole point of my story. You're not alone right. is what I'm saying. Yeah, and you're, we're never done. We're never done with no, this. No, we're not. It's an ongoing process. It's an ongoing well, that, process, I, and, it's, and, and I think, too, like, I, I think there's an added pressure, too. I just want to say one more thing is that if anybody listens to this podcast, I have a feeling they probably at least have an interest and have, have dipped their toe into personal development in general. And I think that there can be such a, a pressure that gets put on us. Two, there's two things that I see happening that I don't really participate in, and it kind of, like, I'm, like, the anti-life coach when it comes to this, but the whole, like, finish strong at the end of the year, but you still have, there's still time to, like, make the most of this year, and then also in the new year, like, what are your goals? What do you want to accomplish? You know, if you own your own business, like, what are your quarter one and quarter two goals? And I, I feel like that can be so much pressure, and for me, all I want to do is, like, stay warm and... <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to have anything to do with goal setting. So that's, that's what's happening over here. Um, let's talk about that. That brings us to New Year's resolutions. And that was kind of mm-hmm. going to be the heart of our discussion today is that. Yeah. Uh, so I am, as you say, like the pattern really never ends wherever you're at, which is not to sound hopeless in a way like, oh, you're not, it's not that we're always stuck in this sort of miserable purgatory kind of space of like oh I'm so so sad I'm sober things are good things are trucking along good but I just sort of feel like I get these kind of like it's like I keep smacking my head on the same beam you know and Mm -hmm. and for a while there it was every day but now it's just like a couple times a year and um and this is the time of year where I'm like oh that's that thinking pattern that gets me into trouble and Mm -hmm. um it is what it's about you know wanting to numb out with food or or feeling a little bit under the pile of whatever the pile is, Christmas presents, laundry, baking, expectation. No. And so the mm-hmm. temptation is to think, okay, New Year's is going to come. I'm going to, all this stuff is going to be gone. I'm going to start fresh and I'm going to, everything is going to be different. <laughs> yeah. And so it's like, it's almost like a rejection of what we're in rather than an acknowledgement of it. And that I can see how that's the temptation and that's the pattern, and we set ourselves up for failure. What's a better way to do this? Yeah, I just and I want to just circle back to underscore something that you said, and that is that you know hitting your head against that same beam. It used to happen. I think you said every day, and now it happens maybe a couple times a year. That's such a great metaphor analogy, if you will, of, of what this looks like and what it looks like for me too. You know, those moments of complete and utter anxiety are so much more fewer and far between than they used to be where that used to be my everyday, that feeling of like crawling out of my skin. It used to be just what happened all the time with my normal. And it's not at all how it is, how it is anymore. And to answer your question, I think that 
you know, I want to say, like, if that works for you, if, if goal setting in the new year and New Year's resolution works for you and you feel really great about it walking into January and you feel inspired and motivated to do that, all means, you go, girl, like, do that. And what I see a lot of times, though, is what you're saying is, like, we set these really high expectations of ourselves. We reject what, you know, where we've come from and, and really kind of make this list. And then January 5th, we're beating ourselves up for not doing all these things that we had put down on our list. And so I can't remember the last time I said a New Year's resolution. I remember, I think it was like in 2010 or 2011, it was sort of the trend. And I know a lot of people still do it. They have like the word of the year. And again, like if that works for you, hell yes. Like do it. It doesn't work for me. And what I invite people to do is really, if they haven't yet done any sort of values work, is to do some values work. I think that um, anyone can benefit from that. And personally, it has changed my life. So I try my best to live my life according to my values. And I can talk more about that. I've written about it in both books more at length than the second one. And just, and like, I'm happy to walk people through what that looks like and what's important about it. And it just, instead of making it like, here's this list of things I want to do. How about you really focus on what's important about the way you live your life and look for patterns and behaviors that are out of alignment of that and how you can be compassionate to kind of course correct and look at what makes you proud of how you're showing up every day. Okay, so where do we start with that? I love it. Totally easy. Okay, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, would, I would start by just asking yourself the question, what's important about the way you live your life? And, you know, what's important to you, period? If I had to guess a, a very, you know, some general um, popular, you know, if there's a, and the not a better word I'm thinking of right now, common values are, Courage, um, for many people, it's their faith. Uh, freedom is, is one that I hear all the time. Integrity, love, honesty. You know, these are common. If you can even do a Google search for most common personal values. And the most important thing that I want people to think about when they're doing this work is more importantly, what do each one of those look like in your life? So if you have a value around authenticity, it's much more important to be able to identify what that looks like on the ground level. And what I mean by that is in your everyday life, what does authenticity mean? So for an example might be um, it might be showing up uh, and having to set boundaries with certain people, which is not easy. Like that's hard work for everybody. It might mean letting go of certain friendships where you feel like you have to be someone else in order to fit in. It might be that you have to confront your racist friends. It might be, like, you know, all these things that are, that are difficult. I think sometimes we look at these, these words and we're like, oh, that seems really amazing. Like I want to live my life according to that. But doing the work is another story, and that is where the real work comes from. I would start there. Like, what is important about the way you live your life? What's important to you, period? So here's a challenge when it comes to that. For me, Uh a lot of my recovery, and, you know, earlier I was saying I thought my life was perfect. Um, Because there's kind of um, those values that we can have, 
they can be very closely associated with an unhealthy behavior. And there's a fine line of distinction. So just for example, mm-hmm. you said being authentic. Um, and that to me can be mixed up with um, when we are say things maybe we shouldn't, and then we say, well, I'm just being honest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or one of my values I've learned, it's probably my biggest core value is kindness. And yet, as somebody who has to work really hard not to stray into codependency and people-pleasing, someone said to me, you know, there's a big difference between being kind and being nice. Because sometimes when we're just Mm -hmm. being nice, yeah, or we're actually trying to manipulate people into liking us. Whereas Mm -hmm. pure kindness doesn't really rely on a response. So as we... I just I encourage I guess listeners to challenge themselves like we you might have some virtues but as you're trying to live in them you're slipping into that gray area of you know you might think well I'm being honest why do I feel icky and mm-hmm. it could be that you're being honest but you're not being authentic do you feel like there's any trick to, mm-hmm. <laughs> to oh, staying on the right side of that. that yeah and I think that there's there's a lot of gray area and I so I love the example that you you gave. And so I, I definitely think it's a case-by-case basis. And so, I mean, we could have a whole hour conversation about authenticity and hard conversations and what's the difference between an ultimatum and a boundary and, like, in that whole kind of communication 101. Right. But I think yeah. that um, you what you are responsible for, anytime you are standing in your authenticity and more specifically when we're talking about maybe – um, let me ask you. So, are you? Can you give me an example of what that might look like? Are you when you're when you're saying that example? Are you thinking of like calling out someone's behavior or something else? Um, maybe being a little snarky. Okay, um, gotcha. Got it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that your tone matters. Like, there's no there's there's a total difference between being. You can still be honest and authentic. And deliberate, your delivery matters, like, and deliberate in a kind way. I think that, I was going to say everyone knows, but I don't think that that's actually true. I think some people don't really know when they're being a total jerk. <laughs> but right. I know what you're talking about. Those people who are like, I'm just being honest. I would, if, if somebody, if I feel like somebody is being snarky with me and then I say something like, well, that wasn't very nice. And they, they say something like, I'm just living in my value of, of being honest and being authentic. What I would say to that is your delivery matters. And I have said that to people in my life, like your tone and your delivery matters because it's a very different thing to, you can say something in a sarcastic tone and then also you can say it from your real voice. If anyone has like a whiny I have an 11-year-old and a 9-year-old. Like, I know the difference. <laughs> There's, I think the bottom line of it is that your, your delivery matters. Right. Do you think it comes back to um, maybe embodying our values at once, right? Because we can value authenticity and honesty, but if we also value kindness or being loving, well, if you're going to be authentic and kind and loving – then there's no room for sarcasm in there. So maybe no really it, isn't. it's like layering. Um, well, in therapy, my one of the first things that my um, therapist had me do was sort of figure out my virtues or my values. And then she was like, okay, those are in a bubble with you now. And wherever you go, you 
operate through that lens of you're, you're not going to do anything through that bubble that doesn't, you know, embody those things. Mm-hmm. And so it made me think of more than one thing at a time. It was a really simplistic way of doing it. Um, but it, it made me think, like, and just yeah. stopping to think is a big part of it, I guess. So is it? A, would you recommend doing it as a written exercise, Andrea, to just sit down Absolutely. with your journal and... Yeah, and and you can, again, that's something you can Google is, you know, personal values exercise, and I'm sure that there's PDFs that you can print out that have a list of the top most common, maybe 50 or so values, and, Mm -hmm. you know, what I would recommend is going through those and just circling the ones that jump out at you just quickly, and then going back and asking yourself the question, okay, are are these things that are important to me, or are they things that I think I should deem as important or maybe they were important to my family of origin, but they don't really matter to me right now in my life because as seasons change in your life, so do your values because you might not at this moment, maybe you're at home with two small children and a dog and you homeschool. So perhaps being of service and giving back to your community is not one of your values right now. Like you simply just do not have the time and energy for it. It doesn't make you a bad person. Like, cause I think that sometimes we see these words and we're like, Oh, that's what should be important to me. Your values are not up for judgment or criticism or ridicule from anyone. This is a personal exercise that is important to you. So maybe you, you go and you circle, you know, however many you have and then break it down to your top 10. And then it becomes really difficult because it can feel like picking between which one of your children or your cats or your favorite where you, you know, think about like your top three. And so what I like to ask people when I'm asking them to narrow it down is to also think about what values are the most important to you when crap hits the fan in your life or you are faced with a difficult situation and you have to really stand in the woman that you the person that you really, really want to be, what's mm-hmm. most important to you? And that might be for someone that might really narrow it down to perhaps faith and courage and honesty or something like that. You know, I, I do this exercise once every couple of years because it shifts and changes over time. So is it who we who we ideally want to be in those moments? Or are we trying to capture how we tend to react in those moments? It's an idealized. Well, and, okay. Yeah, that's a great point because it's what happens with most people is they, they pause. If I don't preface it, they'll pause and say, are these values that I want to have in my life or that I am currently embodying? And you can sort of break it down into two lists. What we, what we do is we call those the aspired values. So the ones that maybe balance is an aspired value of yours where you're not honoring at all at all in your life, you know, it's very unbalanced, but it is something that you want to strive towards. Those are so important because when you have your list of, of aspired values, you can think about what do you need to do to bridge the gap between where you are right now and what that value looks like for you. And I'll be honest with you, Jean, like, I don't know any person who is honoring all of their values at all times of their life. There's typically a few of them where there's work to be done. And I mean, unless you devote all of your time (laughs) 
to being able to, which is just a lot of personal development work. I don't even have time to do all that. There's going to be a couple of values that you are, you know, thinking about striving for. You're not going to nail them all. Okay, so we need to be gentle with ourselves in that. But stretch goals are are good to have, right? It's good to know what we want for ourselves, even if we don't always attain it, and then be gentle with ourselves about that. So how does that play into? And then how does that tie into New Year's thinking? I mean, that sounds like something that's a great baseline all the time. Um, Exactly. Do we give it an extra push this time of year, or um, is it a great time to sort of start that new kind of thinking? What what more can we do with it at this time of year? Yeah, I think that it's a great time to sort of take inventory. I know some people like to do that on their birthday or on New Year's or on their sober anniversary and just think about – again, like how they're living their life, how they want to live their life. What I hear from a lot of people that I work with is that they'll say something like values work changed my life. Now I look at everything through the lens of my values. And, you know, I just had a a phone call with a client this morning and she's going home for the holidays to see her parents and she's sober and her, her mom tends to drink a lot and there tends to be arguments and she's going to walk into this holiday season and have a really hard conversation with her mom and say, um, I love you. And if this happens again, I'm going to excuse myself from the house and and be gone for a few hours. So what she's doing is she is having a very difficult conversation and she's doing it in a kind, deliberate, intentional way. And she's looking at the conversation through the lens of her values. How does she want to show up to this conversation and there are several things that she that she thought about she wants to take responsibility for her own behavior instead of pointing the finger and saying like you drink too much I don't like the way you act that's typically never helpful <laughs> like who wants to listen to that nobody but to take in responsibility and ownership but it's it's really um, I kind of went off on a side tangent because I get excited about this topic Jean but it really is I mean I encourage everyone to do it whenever they can but I truly believe that it can be sort of an alternative to setting New Year's resolutions. I love it. I think that's really good. And I like that we can kind of work on one thing at a time, too, knowing, you know, what time of year we're in. Like, for me, this is year-end. I do bookkeeping for our company, and I hate it so much. I hate it so much. But I'm really grateful that, you know, we actually have money to look after, I guess. Mm-hmm, <laughs> so mm-hmm. I'm grateful for it. But this is So this time of year, I can tell that maybe gratitude needs to be something that I really work on versus another time of year where there's a lot more, say, busyness or travel and being more grounded or more present might be more my focus. So it's like kind of constant analysis of it. Yeah, it can, it can be a constant analysis of it. And then I also I feel like there's balance in that too because what I tend to see in – in the sober community and, you know, beyond are really smart women who are tend to be dichotomous thinkers and, you know, it's very black or white and sometimes it can be all or nothing. And it, you know, there is such a thing as what's called over identification. It's where we want to put a label on any, on everything. It's like, well, is this an addiction? Is this my value of, you know, it's like we're constantly like trying to kind of categorize everything. So I think that can happen too. And sometimes, Uh. Sometimes I yeah. take a break from personal development, and I'm like, I can't <laughs> think about this anymore. <laughs> I cannot read it for help. 
Well, that's funny, considering that your whole life is about helping others help themselves. And, yeah, there are sometimes um, so that's I'm like, good. I just need to watch the Jersey Shore and, like, just not think about anything. <laughs> I don't even know if I still on, but. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Yeah. Um, so you were talking about, too, how, how really understanding our values can help us sort of assess our own level of happiness. Am I understanding that right? Yeah, absolutely. Tell me more about that. Do you want me to say more on that? (laughs) Yeah. Well, it it can be just a great way to, a couple different ways you can approach this. I think think one, I'll give you all a pretty simple exercise to do that's sort of like life coaching 101. And if you look at your life, let me get a piece of paper and a pen so I can jot down these different areas. So if you look at your life like on a pie chart, and there, you know, you can break up the pie into different areas. And so you have, you know, your career is one, your family is another, your friendships, you can do um, your physical health is another section, your, your physical environment, because I think that that's something that doesn't get looked at enough. Um, you know, money can be another area of your life. You could do, um, you know, goals and aspirations. And like, what am I forgetting? Um, probably... Your romantic relationships can be another area. So that's just, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Perfect. Eight different pieces of a pie. And you can look at each of those areas and rate them on a scale of one to ten about how content you are in each of those areas, how happy are you in each of those areas. I have yet to meet somebody who, even if they're working on their life pretty diligently, gets a ten in every area. You're, you're going to have to have some areas neglected it just is how it goes. I just, I don't want to set people up for, I have a lot of overachievers in my community. So I suspect there's some listening <laughs> to this as well. But, you know, look at the areas where, where um, you're, you're rating it low. And for some people, you know, maybe you're single and you just, if you've got a divorce or went through a breakup and you just want to take a break for a while and you just don't want to date, you are, you are um, focusing on your recovery or, or whatever, and that's okay if you, you know, if you rate lower and it's not something that you're ready to work on right now, or maybe you're going to therapy and that's your way of working on it. But like, are there any areas where you rated yourself low that you can take action on that and do something about it? Like I think that's a great example what you just gave, Jane, is talking about um, maybe working on expressing gratitude instead of like, oh, I hate having to crunch all these numbers at the end of the year. Like that is one step that you can take to make that task a little bit more tolerable. And so, again, that's kind of like I'm a big fan of like putting things out on paper because many times we get caught in this cycle of complaining and and not even realizing that we're doing it sometimes. And many times like it's something that you can change. I have a friend that says, don't complain about anything that you're not willing to take action on. And if you think about that sometimes, <laughs> it might catch you. I think that there is really something great about conscious complaining, like venting. I'm a fan. But if it's something that you're chronically complaining about, like if you just sort of ask yourself that question, like, well, are you willing to take any action on making it better? And if you're not, then try to stop complaining about it. It just, again, it's not – it's not like a punishment or, you know, I'm not thanking anybody, but just something to think about. Right. And it, complaining is habitual. It really is. It is. Um, and it can really be triggered it. around, you know, 
old relationships, if, if that was sort of the pattern we had with those people, whether it's family of origin or old friends or just, you know, someone who is does that themselves, they drag you back into it. And so it's a choice to do that. Um, mm-hmm. I, uh, and I want to, I want to come back to something you said there, as you were talking about rating those sections of your life. So you said rate them according to your contentment with them. So it, rather than as people in recovery who have a tendency towards people pleasing and codependency, uh, want to do not rate the, the the tendency I would think at least for myself would be to rate it in terms of how happy I am with how it looks to the outside world mm-hmm. or how happy I am with how I'm measuring up but that's not what you're saying to do right um, mm-hmm. if you have no money and you're happy and you're content with no money then you get a 10 out of 10 with that not not a low score because you're not measuring up to some external value system that isn't your own um, expectation it took mm-hmm. me a long time to let go of that because, you know, my if you asked me what I'd wanted, I, I, my honest answer would be I want what you want or I want you to like me, so I want whatever you want me to want. Yeah. <clears throat> and um, it was a real, it still is really uncomfortable for me to think about what do I actually want right now and how do I actually feel about this and am I really okay with X, Y, Z in my heart or am I do I need to just get comfortable with the fact that that might not be okay with other people? Do you feel like that's a big yeah. hurdle to get over? Is, I is, do. Is that really assessing our own level of contentment? It's, it, it is a big hurdle, and I think it's such an important point that you brought up. And I think part of what can help us, and this does not go for everybody, because I know plenty of women well into their 40s, 50s, 60s, and beyond who really struggle with people-pleasing. But I think for, for many women, um, and probably some men too, that with age – we start to, I don't know if it's just like this wisdom thing that's bestowed onto us once those years start ticking by. Have you found that to be true with yourself? Like where you kind of care a little bit less as you get older about um, what other people think? It's starting to happen, Andrea. It is starting yeah. to happen. Miracle. And it's like it's like <laughs> taking off your bra, you know, at the end of yes. the day. It's like, oh, that's that's how good that feels. Why yes. this, has this taken me so long? But then I still I think put it my just kind of like wears us down. Exactly. But it's been an interesting, so we um, bought our house several years ago. And for myself, for my husband, it was his second home that he owned. But for, for me, this is the first home that I've ever owned. And comes, you know, the, the, lo- the love and the fun part of decorating. So, I grew up in a house where my mom could have worked for Ethan Allen or Pottery Barn. Like she just had that decorating talent. She probably missed her calling as an interior decorator. And our house was always not only impeccably clean, but very nice. Even though we didn't have a ton of money, my mom had this way of just making it look like a model home. Like I would go to other people's houses. I remember the first time I moved out on my own was when I realized that dirt accumulates in the windowsills. Don't <laughs> vacuum it out. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like, just, just that's how I grew up. And so, when I started decorating my own home, I found myself. And my husband pointed it pointed it out. He goes, "You get so stressed out when your mom is coming to visit." And I was like, "You know, you're right. I, I am." And so it's like this thing. Like, I want things to be really great. My mom even wasn't so much of a perfectionist and never hard on me. It's just like these kind of unsaid messages that we get as we're growing up. Like, we all have them. And so I finally got to the point where I, my, my home office is also, it's a large room that doubles as a guest room. 
and it's sort of the last room that I've, I've been decorating. And I kept kind of going back to this, like, well, what would a guest want who's here? And like, what do I need? And, you know, guests come over and I want this room to be really great. And then I was like, you know what? 99.99% of the time I am in here. <laughs> so guess whose opinion matters the most? Mine. I don't give a crap if somebody comes over and they don't like my bedspread. It's just, I finally had this epiphany where it was like, I live here. I live here, and what's important is that if I like it, and that's something that I, I keep having to remind myself, and that I'm trying to also pass on to my children, which is difficult when I have a very expressive daughter who wants to dress very differently than I think <laughs> would look cute on her. She's experimenting with her style, let's just say that. But it's, it's really sort of, I, I think also as women, I think you know a lot of your audience um, are women, it's just that we don't grow up getting permission to, you know, like the messages that we get culturally are you are on this planet to please others and to walk away from that and to stand in that place of pleasing yourself in from, you know, that can have many different meanings (laughs) is an act of of just revolution for, for many of us. And so I'm only 43 and I already am feeling that like, that um, kind of, you know, stomping my foot and saying like, no, this is, it's important to me. I'm not going to be unkind to people, but if you come over to my house, it's decorated for me. Like I'm not doing it for you. And it looks pretty damn good if I do say so myself. (laughs) And don't you find too, when people come to our house, they want to, they want to get to know us better. I like, I always think that I always know someone better when I've been to their home and not because I can judge them more critically, but because you start to see like how they express themselves in their own space and mm-hmm. what they value Absolutely. and what they comfort. And I would feel like, you know, if you let me sleep in your office room, I would just feel so honored that as a guest, I was welcomed into that space. That's so yours, you know, you but, can come and stay with me anytime. Jean McCarthy. <laughs> okay. I will. And, and actually, I'll look after bed. your kids, and you can go have a nap or something. <laughs> um, oh. Yeah, I, I think that's so true. You mentioned also about journaling, and I wanted to ask your opinion on this. So I started doing something recently that's been really freeing for me. So I have journaled, or actually I have lots of books with the first 30 pages in them journaled, and then I quit journaling after a while, but I kept them all. And then they make me really anxious because I don't want anyone else to read them. So when I I started doing morning pages last year, I, um, every few days, I pull the pages out of the scribbler and I put them through the shredder. Mm -hmm. And this has completely changed my journaling practice because I realized that when I was writing before, I was writing with the expectation that some, you know, it was from reading Anne Frank's diary, I'm sure, when I was a child, the expectation mm-hmm. that someday, you know, posthumously, everyone would realize that I was a genius and they would want to mm-hmm. read everything I had written. And I was really writing in that really um, reflective kind of manner. And now that I'm really writing, just like kind of a verbal vomit that I know, not only is no one going to read, but I'm not even going to give them the opportunity to read it. Um, it's changed how I write. But the other, the downside of it is that I can't go back and read it then either. Do you think that's beneficial or do you think that we should be reviewing our journals periodically? 
gosh, I think that's such a personal decision that really depends on you. And from what you just told me, I think that if it's working for you, then keep doing that. If you find growth and reflection and, um, and just your own personal stretching in what you're doing, then by all means keep doing that. Like I'm a fan of everybody finding what works for them and take it and run with it. Mm-hmm. Good. I'll keep doing it then. <laughs> because I think there's people, you know, and, then, and when you were telling that story, it was really interesting to me. It struck me as so interesting because as someone who journals that keeps all of my journals, I don't, I don't think about that. Like I, I, I write with reckless abandon and, and if somebody reads it, I mean, I don't know. I don't think I would be, well, there's, if, if I'm writing, to be honest, if I'm writing about something where I would be mortified if people read it, which I have done, <laughs> I think we all have those thoughts and stories. Ah, uh, okay. Other you put it on, stuff, you do it on your computer. Just, yeah, like other other uh, other stuff. I I normally um, journal by hand because I'm a big fan of that. That stuff I've kept, and oh my gosh, I have my journals from when I was in elementary school and when I was a teenager, when I was with my very first boyfriend, and it is literary gold. Like it's hilarious. It was not hilarious at the time, <laughs> but so oh my gosh, me and him and. Yes, and it's just it's sweet, and um, and also it reminds me, you know, as I have my children going into teenager, I remember it. It helps me remember that obsession of like teenage love, and I think it'll be a good reminder for me when that happens to my children, even when it happens to my children. But yeah, that's a that's a story for another time. <laughs> but would you be? Are you okay if other people read them? Like if if you have them on the shelf, say in your office. And your company mm-hmm. who stays in your guest room, which serves as your office, pulled it out of the shelf for their bedtime reading and read three-year-old journals. Would that be horrible? Or yeah. is it okay? Are you keeping it because it's okay? Those I keep. Um, the ones that are really intimate where I'm, like, literally talking about, like, the first time my boyfriend and I had sex. Like, it's so – it's, it's – um, I wouldn't be mortified, but to be honest, like those are more hidden in my bedroom. Like if somebody really went looking and ransacking, <laughs> they could find them. But the stuff I have in my office, those are more just like gratitude journals, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't be mortified. I mean, it's it's intimate, but I, it's not anything where, like to be honest, it's like I'm grateful for my family and the money in our bank account and like that kind of stuff. So no, I wouldn't be mortified. I should qualify that while I shed my morning pages, I have a second book that's more like a workbook where I do the exercises that, you know, my counselor gives me or that kind of thing, mm-hmm. or I did like a, a virtues value assessment. And some of the things we've been talking about today, I just coincidentally have done recently. I didn't, I didn't really know that was going to overlap. So that's, that's cool. And oh. that stuff I keep. And yeah. it's almost more like an art journal or a, that is, a That's interesting. I'm glad that you kept that. I actually have, now that you mention it, I have my journal when I went through the 12 steps. And my step four is in there, my inventory. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That one I think I would cringe if somebody read it. But at the end of the day, and to be honest with you, I think because I do this work, I and I teach it and it's my job, I feel like I have a stamina that is not that common. It's not as common as everybody else to where I, if somebody read it, I would be like, yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's my truth. And it's it's nothing mean. It's it's 
it's, I think it's a great, you know, step four in the 12 steps is about, um, I mean, you know, but most people listening probably know what step four is, but it's really looking at all of your resentment and what your part in it is. And I think that, I think it might actually help people if they read it <laughs> to do their own work in their life. But yeah, I have that too in my bedroom. I think that's so, you know, I'm glad you brought up that because that kind of work, that can really help us measure how far we've come when we are yes. able to look back at that. And I didn't go through a 12-step recovery program to get sober. I kind of hobbled together other things. But I did use the idea of a step four because I just thought that was so interesting. Oh, what does that have to do with anything? Mm -hmm. And then I thought about, well, you know, just as an example, I live in in a really uh, uh, heavily populated area of Mormonism in Mm -hmm. alberta and i had even though you know i was raised here and it's it's not a bad thing but i had a huge resentment against that religion because i felt like because i wasn't mormon they were judging me and and so i like you know i had so much resentment towards that and therefore i really wanted to prove all the ways that i felt that theology was wrong and i i used to argue with um poor little missionaries that came to my door and <laughs> mm-hmm. I would keep boring. literature on hand for them. Like, and I realized I wouldn't have thought that had anything at all to do with my drinking, but um, it tied into, it was a resentment. And so it was mm-hmm. worth exploring. And when I explored it, guess what? I got to let myself off the hook of, you know, disproving an entire theology or, or standing against something that I felt, was against me and it just I really it helped me pick the hairball apart it was so useful um yeah so I just wanted to t- talk about that a little bit more because I know we have lots of listeners who are um sober curious or new to recovery and wondering about what these tools are that people use to get sober and uh, I always appreciate mm-hmm. it when people talk about their step work and and how it's helped them in yeah. the time that's left, um, I want to talk a little bit about well, two things. One is just this life of abundance that you that you lead. I feel like you live really wholeheartedly and in a way that really defies the stigma of what addiction and recovery are all about. Um, so I'd like to talk a little bit about what life just looks like for you and and how it feels for you to be a woman in recovery. And then Mm -hmm. I would like to talk a little bit about some of the great offerings that are on your website. So let's start with abundance. Yeah, and I'm happy to talk about that because I feel like I can, there's a distinct difference about what my life looks like now versus what it looks like before. And it it has a lot to do with the lens that I I filter everything through. And that's, you know, what we were talking about at the beginning of the, of the the show is, is, you know, for me, my, my absolute top value is courage. And what that looks like in my life is having the courage to tell people about really difficult things, excuse me, so, for instance, literally just last night, I had to have a conversation with my husband. Um, he and I have been married for 10 years, but I was married before, and my ex-husband and I did not have children, but we had a bit of a tumultuous relationship where I carry, as many of us do, when we have difficult relationships, either from our family of origin or, or romantic relationships, we tend to carry those into our new relationships. And I have triggers 
and I get, um, you know, there are things that happen that are just everyday things that upset me and that I will sort of, you know, take something out of my husband that's not his to bear. And I am very transparent. I should say I try my best to be transparent. I actually, it happened and I, it, like a few weeks went by before I finally told him what was happening. And that was, that was last night. So it's just an example of, of how I, I live my life now of instead of being passive aggressive or, <laughs> you know, like getting mad about something that really doesn't have anything to do with what I'm saying I'm mad about, but it's about something else and, you know, being resentful and, and things like that. It's, it's very, very different. I think that how I live my life now in recovery is I'm, I'm extremely honest with myself. I also am a lot more compassionate with myself than I used to be. I used to have expectations that were not humanly possible. I very much was, I came from a legacy of strong women and our family motto was soldier on, suck it up, do better next time. Nobody wants to hear you crying about it. And just like, you know, strengths in our, in our, in our being stoic. And I, you know, I wore that as a badge of honor and I look at my mother and, you know, and, and her mother before her and it's just, it's, um, it's not sustainable. It wasn't sustainable for me and I was falling apart and it came out in my addictions and I was extremely, extremely angry a lot of the time. And it, um, it leaked out into the people that I loved the most. So that wasn't fun. <laughs> um, it really took my entire life falling apart, which if you listen to one of my previous episodes, I'm pretty sure I told the story of when that happened. But speaking of journaling, those are interesting journals to go read because I, you can, you can, I can completely, you can see my life and my attitude and my thought process changing in my journals as I start to let go of old ideas and, um, and ways of being really and started to take responsibility for my life. But when you say the word wholehearted, what I, what I think of when I think about what that looks like is, is what I said. It's, it's being really honest with myself and kind at the same time. Because you can be honest with yourself and also be really hard on yourself at the same time over it. And also what's really important, honestly, Jean, and I think that this can be complicated for people in recovery, so I, I don't want to minimize it and say it's easy is having a really great support system. Mm-hmm. And it's, I had a really difficult time trusting other women. I didn't have friendships that were very healthy. And it was, a lot of it was my fault. I'm not saying that it was like the women that I was friends with. Like I didn't know how to be a good friend. I didn't know how to sit with someone in a really difficult time. I couldn't be with my own feelings, so I sure as heck couldn't be with yours. And it took me being in recovery and, and um, really processing my own emotions and feelings and life without booze or without men or without exercise or, or whatever, you know, the addiction du jour was for me. And that becoming, you know, what I like to call like emotionally literate and, and also um, letting people help me and letting people love me because what I always say about my life was what I wanted more than anything was love and connection and intimacy and trust. And those were the exact same things that I was also terrified of. And um, it's still a work in process. 
you know, end of 2018 and I still, one of my other top values that I'm working on right now is trust, trusting myself and trusting other people, letting them into my heart and also letting them love me and help me. So that sort of sums up what wholehearted looks like for me. Wow. That's a lot. And it, is. it strikes me as you say that, that, <laughs> no you know, learning yeah, to be, <laughs> um, did you did you begin your recovery sort of support base through twelve step groups, or did you go out and sort of handpick, um, you know, people to fill those roles, or how did you develop that in your life? It did start with twelve step programs. I watched my dad go through the program in nineteen ninety four when I was eighteen, and he got sober. So I already knew about the program, and um. I had also just moved. We left, you know, speaking of, of Mormonism, we left San Diego where I was born and raised, and we moved to Utah. And, and just a couple of months after we moved, I got sober. It had really come to a head, and I got sober. And it was also kind of easier for me to do that because I didn't know anybody. And it was easy for me to walk into these meetings, and, you know, it just I, I'm, I know I'm not going to run into anybody I know because I didn't know anybody except my mom. <laughs> but we, you know, we moved to Utah. So uh, it did start there. And then also was about cultivating especially female friendships that um, of people who were like-minded and like-spirited. A lot of them were not sober, but, you know, they don't have addiction problems. And not that they're problem-free, but uh, addiction wasn't, you know, one of the things that they were working through. And, and it was really just about, again, like what I said, being intentional about my friendships. And we call them, my friends and I call them big girl friendships, and they're – you know, having hard conversations and having to say, like, have those difficult talks where you say, you hurt my feelings, and I, the old me would have just not said anything and gotten into a big drunk fight <laughs> at one point or the other with my girlfriend, but now we tell each other, and, um, oh, yeah, it's hard work. It's so worth it. Uh, in the last few minutes, um I just I spent some time on your website this morning and oh my gosh you have so much going on. Um your your books are great, uh excellent resource for anybody who wants to just spend some time looking inward and and working on themselves. I I really enjoy your writing. Um I like that it's approachable and um make sense of things in a way that's very conversant. Um, but I also noticed that you have, you've got your blog, you've got some uh, online programs that people can do, and your podcast, and even some retreats. So tell me about some of the stuff you have coming up in 2019. Thank you for those kind words about, about my books, and I will keep writing them. My agent has been bugging me about when, when book number three is coming out. And, yeah, a great place to start is with one of my books. And you can get them on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, wherever books are sold. And actually in 2019, I'm, I am making some changes. You can also start with my podcast. So it's always free. I have 200 and something episodes. You've been a guest on my podcast. So I can send you the link so people can go and listen to that. And really, I think what my zone of genius is and what I'm really, really good at and what I'm going to start focusing more on are small, intimate groups of women who are ready to transform their lives. So I'm also certified in the work of Dr. Brene Brown and teach shame resilience. And I've been doing that for four and a half years. And 
I, it's called the mentorship. Sometimes I call it the masterclass. It's really like my signature program. It's 12 weeks long. It includes a workshop retreat here at my house in North Carolina, and you can come meet my dog, which few people are obsessed with on Instagram. And um, that's, you can read all about that at yourkickasslife.com slash mentorship. And right now there's a, there's a waiting list, and details will be released soon on that. That's cool. So you're doing a workshop right at your own house. What a great idea. Yeah, it's uh, it just it's one of those things where I was like standing in my living room and I'm like, look at this big sectional. I have enough room here for people to come over. <laughs> <laughs> and I that's really what what I'm I, I I will toot my own horn. I almost apologize for it, but I'm not going to. I'm a I'm a it's one of my zones of genius is just gathering together women who are ready to really really do the work. So it's not for people who just kind of want to dip their toe in and check it out. It's for women who are committed, who are ready to practice shame resilience and, and put those tools that I just mentioned a few minutes ago into work. And, um, yeah, and come over so I can hug you. And you can see how so I decorate that workshop, my house. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Get to know Andrea better. Um, is that then, would you say that that's a recovery-focused thing, or is it sort of a patch on the patchwork of recovery, of like it's one tool that you can use, whether I you're in recovery from term. alcohol addiction or anything? Mm-hmm. Patch on the patchwork. I tend to have anywhere between 30 to 50 percent of my of the women in my group programs are in recovery. So many times the conversation goes in that direction, but not everyone is in recovery. But pretty much everyone is recovering from something. Like you were mentioned, they either have struggles with eating or um, love addiction or something like that. And so many times I hear women say, you know, who don't struggle with alcohol, they'll say. You know, when Jean was talking about her story with wine, I could just replace the word food, and that's my same story. So there's definitely a kinship in the group, and mm-hmm. yes, it's a patch on the the patchwork. That was such a beautiful. I love that of of recovery. Yeah, I can't take credit for that. That is the that's sort of the symbolism that um, William White has perpetuated with his recovery advocacy work, the William White Papers, and. Um, it's language that he's kind of come up with, and I really love it because I feel like it's it's such a great way to look at things in this age of information that we're in, where yeah. I believe that women in particular are recovering earlier in their trajectory because we have this access to information and this other way to connect using the Internet, and, and so we can start to make changes in our life earlier in our addiction trajectory and connect the dots to the other areas of our life. And so um, yeah, even though traditional programs are really effective and a really good tool, um, when we when we take an earlier approach to things, um, that's when the patchwork can really start to come in and we can, we can sort of branch out in what we're working on. And I feel like your work lends itself perfectly to that. Um, well, thank you. I mean, when you're talking about recovery, you're talking about shame and Mm -hmm. um, it's all connected and it's, it's so, it definitely is a deep dive and it's so incredibly important to work on. So Andrea, your website is yourkickasslife.com and the books that I want everyone to go and look up and order right now, 52 Ways to Live a Kick-Ass Life and How to Stop Feeling Like Shit by Andrea (laughs) Owen. And um, check out her blog, listen to her podcast, and maybe just uh, when when this episode is done, open your journal and spend some time writing out your values. And if people want to reach you, how can they reach you? 
The best way to do that is through the contact form on my website, or I love to hang out on Instagram, and I always look at all of my private messages. If you want to shoot me a message and tell me that you heard me here, I, um, I'd be happy to connect with you. All right. Well, everyone, thank you so much for listening. From both Andrea and I, we are wishing you a happy and healthy and safe and full of growth holiday season and new year. And uh, I'll be back with new episodes in 2019. So that's it for today, everyone. And until next time, take good care. Bye, everybody. Not proud that that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free From power Weakness head on me In a dark corner Is where shame lies behind We think you're strong you keep it all inside It just stays and waits there To rob you of your pride Turn the light on, turn the light on You can shine When you see oh, I did that Not proud that that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Just want to be free